Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Hey, I want to wish you a happy fifth Sunday of Easter and uh, welcome you to the fifth week of our series that we're calling The Beautiful Gospel. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've been on a journey of discovering seven tenets, uh, four so far, of a faith that is very good news. Uh, And so each week, this is how we've been structuring the series, each week we've kind of been putting a piece uh, of a puzzle together that will help us form a coherent system of belief uh, that is good news for all people. Uh, And we're doing this so that it will help us embody the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. In other words, it isn't just information for information's sake or belief so that we can kind of check a box of saying, yes, we believe uh, kind of rightly or biblically according to the, uh, believe the right thing. It's rather just to say uh, the point is not just information, the point is transformation. Uh, Not just only of us, but of the world and of other people's lives. Uh, And so, so far, here are some of the pieces that we've put together so far. Uh, We learned a couple weeks ago that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, therefore, is the center of our faith, not the scriptures themselves. What the scriptures do is bear witness to Jesus. What the scriptures do is point away from themselves to the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus is the center uh, of our faith. And we learned about the difference between the written word and the incarnate word. And the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, is the center of our faith. We are, after all, Christians, Christians. Uh, So we also learned that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities by taking the world of our sins upon himself and then responding with forgiveness, thereby ending the cycle of sin and evil uh, in our lives and in the world. And then we also learn that Jesus has defeated death through resurrection. And resurrection isn't just kind of this uh, way that, that God displays his power, but rather it is the first sign of new creation. And then last week, we explored how we've been given symbols or actions in what the church has come to call sacraments uh, that help us reenact this, this beautiful story, this narrative of redemption. And that communion and baptism are conduits of God's presence in our lives. And they help us live out the ways of Jesus. And in particular, last week, I want to remind you that as we come to the table each week, uh, we do so not as ones who take communion, but as those who receive communion. That God is the acting agent at the table. We come to receive what he has to offer to us. Uh, and we believe that this is that there's some that the Spirit of God is active in forming us, in shaping us, in transforming us as we receive the elements of communion together. Uh, so we've been all along this journey, and today uh, I want to talk about eschatology. Now, eschatology is the fancy theological word for the end. Uh, so it's a study of the end, eschaton meaning eschaton, meaning the end, ology meaning a word about, so eschatology is a word about the end. Uh, now eschatology is uh, the theological puzzle piece that asks, where is this story headed? Uh, and, or another way to frame that same question is, uh, how will this story that we find ourselves uh, come to completion? How will this story in which we find ourselves come to completion? Uh, Well, to begin, I want to tell you a story. Uh, Just after Easter Sunday, uh, I was at a meeting with pastors, 
Uh, and before the meeting, we were all talking about our Easter events, uh, what went well, humorous mishaps, uh, as there always are on a day like Easter Sunday, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, we were all chatting, uh, and as the meeting got started, the, the leader invited us to the, pro- to the popular Easter proclamation, uh, He is risen. He is risen indeed, we responded, right? You guys know it. Uh, And then right after we had joined our voices in this proclamation, he is risen indeed, uh, one of my colleagues spoke up and, and, and said, and I also had my congregation say that he's coming back. And then he quipped, and he's angry. <laughs> now this pastor was clearly telling a joke, right? I don't want to mislead you in any way, but he was, it, was, it was clearly a joke meant to bring a laugh, just like it did in this room. Uh, he wasn't giving a theological, theological treatise, and as with most jokes, it was in, in offhanded comments, uh, it was lacking in any sort of nuance. Uh, but despite that, <laughs> I also think that it was maybe clear that this pastor was revealing a piece in his theological puzzle or his theological system. You know, one of the most popular images of the end is war. In many expressions of faith, it is assumed that in the end, Jesus will renounce uh, the Sermon on the Mount, come back as a warrior to kill all of the evil people, uh, and establish his kingdom through divine violence. Um, What's interesting, though, is that this is precisely what ancient Israel was hoping for, uh, that Jesus would show up and do, that he would kill all those who were oppressors, Uh, established finally Israel back to its glory days. And he would do that through uh, violence that has the divine stamp of approval. Um, What he does instead, when he comes in the New Testament, is instead he comes and he announces a kingdom of forgiveness and love. He teaches about things like justice and generosity. And then he dies on the cross, not as an act of divine retribution, but as a way of exposing the folly of hate, sin, evil, and violence. Now, I already know what some of you are thinking, right? Uh, That the Bible is filled with all sorts of violent images, particularly of the end times, particularly in the book of Revelation, uh, to which I would say, you're right, the book of Revelation is filled with tons of violent images, but that doesn't mean that it actually promotes violence. And while I would love to get into that and unpack all of that, I can't do that today. Instead, I'll refer you to a number of series that we've done on Revelation throughout the years. Here's the problem. The problem is when you add, he's coming back and he's angry, to the end of the Easter proclamation, he is risen, then the events of Easter are reduced to a cosmic transaction that puts God on my side and not on their side. Or to put it another way, Easter becomes just a cosmic transaction in which I enlist in God's army. And I think we need need an eschatology piece that fits, right? The the question that we have to ask is, uh, is this congruent with this kind of beautiful picture that we've been painting from the scriptures themselves based on the authority of scripture so far? Does this puzzle piece fit? Well, I want to read to you uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3 through verse 10. Uh, just as one sampling today, understand today that we are simply scratching the surface 
uh, of a study of eschatology. There are classes, books, uh, sermon series, all sorts of things that we could do to explore this. But given the nature of the series that we're in now, we just kind of hit it as, as uh, you know, as a broad overview. Uh, and I want to look at Ephesians to do that. So uh, you can turn there, you can click there, you can also follow along on the screen. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 3, read all the way through verse 10, and uh, really have what I feel like is just a simple, hopefully very encouraging message uh, that I want to share with you today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his will, with his pleasure and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, for which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Verse 7, and this is where I want to focus, verse 7 through 10. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us in all wisdom and all understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in Christ. And that is to put into effect when time will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the one head, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I got to say, I love this passage of Scripture. I love this passage of Scripture because it is gigantic in scale and practically rebellious in its hope. (laughs) It is gigantic in scale and practically rebellious in its hope. And again, verses 7 through 10, in him, that is in Christ, we have received redemption and forgiveness in accordance with the riches of God's grace that has been lavished on us. And he has made known to us the mystery of his will, that when the time is right to bring all things to unity in Christ. Now, to get a handle on uh, what Paul is saying in this passage, the Apostle Paul, uh, he wrote this to uh, the letter in the, uh, the, he wrote this letter to the church, believers in Ephesus. Uh, And to get an idea of what exactly is going on, I want to uh, introduce you to some really awesome Greek, okay? You want to learn some cool Greek? There's like regular Greek, and then there's like cool Greek. We're learning cool Greek today. Uh, the, The phrase, bring unity, Uh, is the Greek word that we're going to put up on the screens. Here's the Greek word. And uh, my best attempt at saying this is uh, anak ephalomai. Okay? So let's just take a pause at the sheer scale of this word. (laughs) The sheer awesomeness of this word. Uh, now, I'm not a Greek scholar, I admit that, uh, in this microphone, uh, but I also, I also admit that um, with a bachelor's in religion and a master's of divinity that I know just enough Greek to be dangerous. Um, so while I probably can't say this right, I can tell you about this word. Uh, here's what, so this is what we translate, bring unity. 
Uh, a more literal translation, and actually some translations have done this, a more literal translation would bring things together under one head. A more literal translation of this word is to bring things together under one head. It only appears in the Bible this time and one other time. So it's a rare word. Paul is, is using it for a particular purpose, for a particular reason. Now we know from other ancient literature that it's actually a math phrase. Uh, that when you sum up several numbers, this is what you are doing. <laughs> when you come to the end of all this huge list of numbers and you sum them all up, you are doing that. <laughs> and what Paul does is he uses this word to describe what God is doing in Christ and what God will complete when the time is right. And admittedly, it is a very difficult word to translate. In fact, what you saw up on the screen was different from what I read, which was different from what I read this, the, the second time. Uh, and that's because translators have a hard time knowing exactly what to do with this kind of ancient Greek math term and how Paul is applying it here. Uh, and so some translators have, have said, uh, gather up, sum up. Some have even called it recapitulate. But the idea here is that all things are being brought into unity under Jesus Christ, and this is work that God is doing and will complete when the time is right. Now let's talk about recapitulate a little bit. To recapitulate means to retell something. Um, you probably, you actually in your life have probably recapitulated something. Uh, how many of you have had this experience where you went on vacation, you planned everything to the T, everything was just, you had, a, you had an Excel sheet of itinerary, everything was going to be awesome. We don't do this, by the way. This is not a crack at my organized wife. Um, so, so you have like everything planned out to the T. It was all going to be perfect. And then you go on the vacation and everything goes haywire, right? Like everything goes wrong. It's like it turns into the worst vacation ever. Your car broke down. It rained the whole time. You got the stomach bug. I mean, just like everything goes wrong. And then you get back, and while you're there, it is just miserable. You're like, this is the worst vacation ever. I can't wait to get home. Then you get home. You have friends over. You're sitting around the dinner table, and you're telling the story of this vacation. And here's what happens. As you tell the story to your friends around the dinner table, you include those really bad parts because now they're actually funny right? And the whole table is laughing at your vacation, but it wasn't funny when you were living it. It was miserable, right? But here's what happens. In the retelling of the story, the worst parts take on a new meaning. Ha ha. When you tell that story, you have recapitulated it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Now here, here's what else happens. Couples do this, that couples that have been happily married for 30, 40, 50 years, they do this all the time when they tell, this, tell stories, right? Imagine a couple married that long referring to their first apartment. 
And they'll talk about how the apartment was so small that you could sit at the kitchen table and get something out of the fridge at the same time, right? And, and, and they'll, they'll talk about how the walls were so thin that you could hear the cat next door meowing, right? I mean, this is so, and, and how they had to walk a block to the laundry facility and how it cost them their entire paycheck just to do that. And, and listen, at the time, as it was happening, they hated that small place, small place, and they couldn't wait to get out of there. But looking back, it was filled with so many great memories. That same couple might tell you stories about the time that they moved overseas and the transition was so hard because their kids were small and the food was weird and the language was unfamiliar and it was impossible to give a driver's license. But then they'll tell you about how that time was precious because of the growth and the adventure and the new experiences. They've recapitulated that. They've retold it. Or they might tell you stories about the miscarriages or the multiple diagnosis that they just didn't know how things were going to go. Or they might even tell you about the time that they almost gave up on each other and the relationship. You see, what happens is in telling those stories, those things are being recapitulated. It's that those things this, this whole lifetime of experiences of life together has been brought into unity to who the couple is today. You with me? And it doesn't have to just be true for couples 30, 40, 50 years. It doesn't even have to be true for couples, right? If you're here today and you're single, this, all, this is also fits that things are being recapitulated, that all the experiences that you've had in your life up to this point have been brought into unity to the person that you are today. They have been summed up into your life together. And Paul's point is that this is what God is doing in Christ. I thought for sure I'd get an amen there. This is what God is doing in Christ. That in Christ, God is bringing together all things into unity. He is quite literally retelling your story. I think that our theology of the end should start with this God is in the business of retelling. Amen? That, that whatever we think about is going to happen or where this story is headed, we ought to begin with this, that based on the, the evidence and the witness of Scripture is that God is in the business of redemption. God is in the business of retelling. God is in the business of renewal and recapitulation. <laughs> and what God has begun in Christ he will bring together to completion. And in Christ, on the cross, what God has done is he has reconciled the world to himself. He has disarmed the powers and authorities. He has ended the cycle of sin and evil. And he will continue this work until the end. Amen? 
That's the good news. What God has begun in Christ, he will bring it to its fullness. He will bring all things into unity of what he has begun in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we know that this work is not yet done. Right? Of course, in fact, there are days maybe when it can be hard to see that this work is being done at all. And that's why this, this passage is almost rebellious in its hope, <laughs> right? Hope is the certainty of that which we cannot yet fully see. And so the, the, this passage in the midst of maybe all the evidence to the contrary declares in our lives that God is up to something in Christ. He is working on it. And he is retelling, he is renewing, he is redeeming. He's doing all of that. And which, by the way, this is a regular witness throughout Scripture of what God is up to. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, the first part says, at the renewal of all things. Peter stands up and declares to the crowd of onlookers in Acts chapter three, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. <laughs> That's good news. See, whatever we believe about eschatology, the end, how it will play out, what is clear from the scriptures is that what God is up to in the world now is this idea of renewal and redemption, retelling, recapitulating, or as Paul would say, bringing all things together under one head who is Jesus Christ. There's a couple more things I want to point out about this passage and then I'll be done. The first is, is that it's clear, verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 1 makes clear that God takes pleasure in this work. That God takes great pleasure in the retelling, redeeming, restoring, and renewing. And, and let me ask you, what on the surface may seem like a simple question, but I think if we're really honest with ourselves, maybe isn't as simple as it first might appear. And the, that question is this. Do you envision God as a God who takes pleasure? Do you envision God as a God who takes pleasure? Or do we envision God as someone who kind of just has this eternal kind of scowl on his face, looking for all the wrongdoers? This just hit me this week. Recognizing not just that God is in the business of renewal and redemption and all the R-E words, <laughs> but recognizing that it takes God, it gives God pleasure to do so. 
This is God's work, and God loves his work. Man, I think we need to sit with that reality a little bit. In in fact, think of, of something that brings you delight. This is the other word that kept coming to me, that, that God is, takes pleasure in this. That's the biblical word, the word that the scriptures themselves use. But the other word that kept coming to my mind was the word delight. God takes delight in this work. And I wonder, can you think of something that brings delight to you? Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's eating a really good meal for you foodies out there, right? Uh, maybe it's spending time in nature, Uh, One of my favorite things to do in the world, like my picture of just the best thing is like uh, right by a mountain river with two trees close enough together to hang a hammock, right? And just hanging out in the the hammock uh, with with, uh, the sound of the river there. And I just think that I would take delight in that, you know? Um, Whatever it is, whatever picture is in your mind of what brings you delight, How you feel in that moment is how God feels about his redeeming work. God loves to retell the story of our brokenness. God takes delight in his redeeming work. Now, does that mean that the cross for Jesus Christ was easy? Of course not. Of course not. We have the witness of Scripture in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, what God has begun in that moment of pain and the redemption that was begun and accomplished, God takes delight in bringing about what was accomplished at the cross to its full completion. And we can put together charts and timelines and all of that kind of stuff, but at, at, at its foundation, let us just recognize that when we talk about eschatology, we need to be talking about a God who delights in his redeeming work. Amen? Well, the, the second thing, or the second thing, fourth thing, whatever point this is, uh, for those of you keeping track, you can let me know after the service. Um, that, that God is retelling everything. God is retelling everything. Uh, the, the word here that we translate all things in Greek is a very simple Greek word. It's the exact opposite of the word we just looked at. It's the word pas, P-A-S. And it means everything. <laughs> I know you were waiting for something way more profound there, but the word we translate everything means everything, as in all, any, every, the whole. <laughs> God is retelling everything. Uh, author uh, Zach Hoag writes this. He writes, he writes, the light is winning. <laughs> the light is winning. Everything will be made right. And so this morning, I just want to remind us that the good news of the beautiful gospel is that the reconciling, retelling, renewing work of God is expansive, it is inclusive, and in the end, God will take delight, and God does take delight in all the shattered pieces of our lives and of our world and bringing them together in unity under Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel.
that God is all about redeeming work and he takes pleasure in it. That's a simple message, but that's the message I wanted to share this morning is that this, this thing that God is up to in the world is good news because it is about all the broken pieces of our lives and of our world being retold, recapitulated, redeemed, and renewed. Amen. Amen. Well, I've talked about this passage on a pretty cosmic scale, right? What God is up to in the world, yeah, amen, and all of that. Here's, here's a point that I don't think we can overlook. If this is what God is up to in the world, do we dare to believe that our own story can be retold? That if we believe that this is what God is up to sort of on this gigantic scale, do we dare believe that this is what God is up to on a me scale? <laughs> that, that the broken parts of me, the broken parts of my story, the things that have been done to me, the things that I have done, that God is still in the business of working those things and bringing them together in unity to rework, redeem, and renew, and reconcile all of these things, that what is true about what God is doing on a large scale is also true. Do we dare believe this? And by believe, I don't mean give intellectual assent. I mean, do we, do we trust? Do we trust that God is also in the business of rewriting and redeeming my story? Do you believe, do you trust that this is what God is doing in your life? Do I believe that this is what God is doing in my life? And what would it look like to live as though that were true? What would it look like for me to live with the trust that what God is up to is taking pleasure in redeeming work in my life? Wouldn't it change the way I live? And by that, I don't mean sort of this like own personal effort. I, I think there's a participation of effort on our part. But primarily what I'm talking about is us trusting in the work of the Spirit in our own lives to move us, to transform us, to change us, to help rewrite the broken pieces. Well, I hope, church, that we believe this to be true. And again, when I say believe, I don't mean intellectual assent. I mean trust. Do we trust this to be true? Do we know that the work of God in the world is redeeming me and redeeming the world, making all things new? You see, Eschatology, the, the puzzle piece that, that needs to fit into this kind of coherent system um, is not just cosmic in scale. It's personal too. And kind of what, the, the way in which we think about the end has everything to do with how we live right here and right now. Amen? Amen.